Our Lord, we do ask you to speak to us and to stir up in us the truth of the words we sing, that we come to you to worship you, to acknowledge you as supreme in glory and worth and value, as our only hope, as our Savior, as our Lord, as our soon returning King, as the one whom we long for and long to know. These are not natural affections. These are affections that are stirred up by you, Holy Spirit. And so we ask you now to do that very thing through the truth as you've revealed it in Holy Scripture. Help me to be faithful to the text and all of us to listen with attentive ears that you might be honored in our hearts and in our lives. And to this end we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, for those who are new with us this morning, who haven't been here for a while, we are continuing to march through this tremendous epistle of 1 Peter. Uh, Even though we've spent already a couple of months in it, we barely are scratching the surface of all that is revealed in this short and in some ways simple and a quick read, but incredibly intense and truth-filled letter of Peter to these suffering Christians. Now, as we come in this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 5, but just the beginning and introducing this section that really goes down from verse 4 through all the way through chapter 10. And here in this section, Peter is reminding us about the wonders, the distinction, the glories, the privilege of being united to Christ, to being identified as the people of God, as the people of Christ, as partaking of all of the spiritual fruit and the benefits that are in Christ, and in those benefits also experiencing the suffering and the persecution that will come from the world. And that, of course, is a theme that runs all the way through First Peter. He's writing to those who are suffering because of their faith, those who are paying a price for living righteously in an unrighteous world, For those who are experiencing the rejection of even their former friends and some in family, certainly their culture and their government and so on and so forth because of their faith in Christ. And this is nothing new to the readers of the first readers of Peter's epistle. It's the common experience of the church of Christ throughout the ages. We know that in a very minor form here in our culture, but it certainly is being experienced by our brethren at various levels of intensity around the world. It always has and it always will. And one of the things that I want to emphasize for us this morning and that Peter does, particularly in verses 4 through 5, is the distinction of Christians from the world. The distinction of Christians from the world. That we stand distinct, unique from the rest of the world. There are different realities that define us. There are different hopes that define us. There are different loves that define us as the people of God. And I would just note, as a way of introduction here, that it is our distinction as the people of God, it is our distinction as Christians that is our witness to the world. That is our witness to the spiritual reality of a genuine knowledge of Christ, and through that, our witness to the world. This is obvious in one sense, but in another sense it needs to be repeated. Because very often the church, as we observe it around us, and again particularly in our culture and our westernized Christianity, 
tends to think our influence to the world is going to be by looking like the world and becoming like the world and adopting the world's practices. And yet that is exactly the opposite trajectory of Scripture. The church stands distinct in the world and is a witness to Christ and the reality of his life by standing in opposition to the world in terms of its ungodly ways. So the church bears witness to Christ not by adopting the world's thinking, but being distinct from it. The gospel, the truth, and the character of God necessarily stand in opposition and contrast to a world that is controlled and influenced by the God of this world, as he's called in Scripture, Satan. Now before we read our text this morning, I want to I give you an idea of the structure of Peter's argument up to this point in chapter 2. The structure of Peter's argument up into this point in chapter 2. Now, after his opening greetings in verses 1 through 2, where essentially he established the main themes that will run through the rest of the epistle, he began really in verse 3 through 12, establishing the doctrine of Christian hope. The doctrine of Christian hope. He doesn't give any commands in this section, many commands, but he does lay down a lot of statements that declare to us the reality of our hope in Jesus Christ. And this opening section then was followed in verse 13 by a series of imperatives or commands that went all the way down to verse 3 of chapter 2. In other words, because we have a hope in Christ that cannot be shaken, that cannot be taken away, because we have a hope in Christ that guarantees a salvation that will be realized in the last day when Christ returns, because of this hope that we demonstrate a love for Jesus Christ, the confidence in the gospel message, we are then beginning in verse 13 to live in a way that our minds are guarded and we are focused and consumed with the reality of the revelation that is to be brought to us at Jesus Christ. We are marked as obedient children who are in our manner of life pursuing holiness and pursuing this holiness out of a fear of God. We are, as the people of God, marked by a love for one another, a unique love for one another. Certainly we have as was mentioned, a love for the world, but there is a unique love for the brethren that he mentions in verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. A love that matches the eternal nature and is consistent with the new birth received by the Spirit through the Word of God. In verses 23 through 25, and then we are marked by those who are longing for all of the glories and the wonder and conformity to the salvation that we have received. And so after giving these commands, Peter, again here beginning in verses 4 through 10, uh, gives no commands, but he again establishes a doctrine for us, a doctrine that will set the foundation for really the rest of the epistle. And in verses 4 through 10, he's establishing the doctrine that highlights our distinction as Christians, our distinction from the world through our union with Christ, through our sharing the life of Christ, his resurrection Life. He's going to follow this again in verse 11 with a bunch of commands. But here is the pattern that is in Peter and is established really throughout all of Scripture. Namely, that we live consistent with the truth of who we are in Christ. So to live consistent with that truth, we first have to understand who God is, what He has done in Christ, and then what is required from us as we live this out in the world. So in other words, we have doctrine 
the teaching about who Christ is, in this case, our hope in him, and then the commands of how we are to flesh out that doctrine in our life. And so here, Peter is establishing the nature of God's people in Christ who live in fellowship with him, who live in fellowship with one another. And he does this so that we will understand our relationship to the world, our relationship to the world and how we're to live in it as we're awaiting his return. He wants us to understand here that we are distinct, that the world is not our final home and therefore we can expect it to reject us ultimately. And there's many things to say about that, but let me just remind you of one verse in verse 12 of chapter 4. He says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And in fact, the sufferings of Christ and the life of Christ and the very pattern of the life of Christ then becomes the pattern of our own life as the people of God. He came into this world and he suffered the hostility of the world. He was raised to life and will return in victory. We who have come to know Christ, rather who have been made to know Christ by the grace of God, will experience suffering in this world and will eventually be acknowledged with Christ in his victory. As a matter of fact, he says that again over in chapter 2. He says, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. And so Christ's own life then becomes the pattern for our life. His relationship to the world becomes the pattern for our relationship to the world. His ultimate victory and salvation that he'll bring in his kingdom becomes our ultimate victory and experience of the salvation that we have been granted in him. So as I said, Peter begins right off the bat establishing the stark contrast and distinction, the privileged distinction that believers have in this world as those who belong to to Christ. So let me read the text for us. We'll read it together um, and then we'll look at uh, it a bit more closely. So read with me, if you will, uh, from verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2. He says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for those of you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Tremendous words. Look back with me, if you will, at verse 4. And let's note the first privileged distinction. And that is to have a right view and a love for Christ. To have a right view and a love for Christ. He says, coming to him as to living stone, as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. 
As I mentioned earlier, Peter begins right here at the opening of this new section, the distinction and the contrast that exists between those who are in Christ, who are united to Christ, and those who are not, those who are outside of his saving graces, outside of his salvation. And the core of the contrast here is found in what one sees as valuable and how one views Christ. Now, those things are connected because what one sees as valuable, what one truly sees as the greatest benefit of the soul and the desire of the soul, the highest gain of life, is going to determine what they pursue, what they believe about what God has revealed about Christ. To the unbelieving mind, then, Christ is not worthy of worship. He's not worthy of praise. He's certainly not worthy of losing everything to gain. He's certainly not worthy of our obedience. He's certainly not worthy of our love. He's certainly not a treasure that we would sell everything to gain, to use Jesus' own words. He is instead one to be rejected by many openly hated, by the religious and the unreligious. Yet to God, he says here, this same Christ hated by the world is chosen and precious In the sight of God. One way to translate that could be in God's perspective. In God's perspective. In the presence of God. Before God. Before God's eyes. Christ is choice. He is precious. He is chosen. And so he is to God's people. So let me give a big framework here for what's going on. Again, there's so much here that we'll, like a stone skipping on the top of the water, top of the water will cover. But I want to establish a a general framework for this understanding of the rejection of of men, the rejection of men. And really, these two responses to Christ then mark two different spiritual realities, two different spiritual kingdoms that exist in the world. The two ways of evaluating Christ, of evaluating God, and evaluating His work are at the foundation of the two realities that value all men, uh, that define all men. So you, if you are here today, and I assume most of you are in fact a part of the people of God. But everyone in this world and everyone in this room belongs to one of two kingdoms. Either the kingdom of this world that is governed and influenced by Satan or the kingdom of God that has Christ as its head, the firstborn, the preeminent one, God and Lord and Savior over all. There's really only these two kingdoms. And this goes all the way back, what is highlighted here in second, or 1 Peter chapter 2, goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 in the scene in the garden. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I want to put this into your mind as a, as a macro framework, as a big framework uh, for not only Scripture, but for Peter's statement here. Now you'll remember after the fall, after their sin entered into the world through Adam, and ultimately including Eve as well, Jesus, or God said, excuse me, God said to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, I will put enmity between your, you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There is an establishment at the very point of the fall as two seeds that will exist among men. A seed that is identified with the serpent and a seed that is identified with the woman. It is the seed of those who are in rebellion to God and the seed of those ultimately out of whom will come the one who will destroy the works of the devil. Now John, in 1 John, makes a similar distinction uh, 
equally as simple and equally as profound in this. In John, 1 John chapter 3.10, he says, There are two kinds of children in the world. There's two spiritual families. There are the children of the devil and the children of God. Those are the only two. There's not an intermediate state. There's not a, there's not a transition family that you belong to. There's not an intermediate spiritual reality. That's what defines all men. There are the children of God and the children of the devil. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now the seed of the devil was immediately made manifest. It begins with Cain who rose up and killed Abel. And again, 1 John tells us that Cain did this because he, listen, was of the evil one and because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So Cain and Abel, right at the beginning, represent essentially these two lines. And there is not a mild hostility, but the enmity is one that can only ultimately demand the death of one or the other. In this case, represented by Cain, who rose up and killed his brother out of jealousy because of the righteousness of Abel's life and his sacrifice. This line is carried through, this line of the serpent, through Lamech, who killed a man and bragged about it and practiced polygamy, perverting God's design for marriage. This evil line was ultimately then climaxed in the destruction of the world by the flood of whom God gave testimony that he saw the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The same rebellion of man and line of the seed of the serpent was shown in the Tower of Babel when collectively man is coming together to rise up in rebellion against God and his command to disperse through the earth and fill it and to honor him by caring for it. So ultimately this kingdom includes every unregenerate person who rejects God's self-revelation in creation and in his word. That's the seed of the devil. That's the children of the devil. Those are the ones who are outside of Christ. And the mark of this seed then is unbelief and sin, unrighteousness. It is a failure to obediently love God. It ultimately then is demonstrated with all who reject God's purposes, reject God's promises, reject God's word, reject God himself, and in fact oppose him. So in 1 Peter he says then, with this is that in mind is one part of the equation, That we're coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. Has been rejected by men. So the world's response then to Christ is rejection. Now interestingly, the term that he uses here, that's translated as rejection, it has this idea to it. It has rejection after critical examination. That means to evaluate something And then after that evaluation, to conclude it is unworthy, to conclude it is useless. Uh, One describes this this way. Men applied their test to the stone, but because it failed to measure up to their expectations and demands, they cast it aside as useless. And so then that's the idea here of has been rejected by men. It's been rejected by men in general. And the emphasis here is on a continual, present, ongoing rejection. A rejection that began and is ongoing. A rejection by men. And it refers in a general sense then to all humanity. There's a general sense here in which this is definitive of all humanity, again, who are outside of Christ. Let me read to you just one verse. 
You can mark it down. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Uh, these are the opening words of the Gospel of John. Words you're, you're familiar with. He says, There was the true light which coming into the world. Of course, this true light here is the word later to be identified as the begotten son, only begotten son, unique son, better. He says here, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. I remember reading those words many, many years ago, actually not long after I was saved, and, and thinking those were the saddest words in all of Scripture. Those are some of the saddest words in all of Scripture. He who created all things, he who extends himself to, for the flourishing of humanity and the goodness of God to his creation, he who extends himself in reconciliation is rejected. And he is not received. And so that's the general attitude then of the world outside of Christ. Is to reject him. That's your and my attitude coming into the world. I think this was dramatically illustrated this week. Maybe you saw it. Uh, I read it. It was on the news. The Philippine president, uh, Rodrigo Duterte. Um, some of you Spanish speakers can correct my pronunciation there. But Philippine president Rodrigo Duterte said this in a speech, publicized speech. He says, Who is this stupid God? This expletive is then really stupid. You were not involved, but now you're stained with original sin. What kind of religion is that? That's what I can't accept. It's a very stupid proposition. Now, all aren't going to be as bold in how they say that as the Philippine president... But that is at the heart and of the essence of all outside of Christ. That is an unacceptable proposition of who Christ is, and I reject it. I reject it. So Peter has in mind here, then, the rejection of all men. But, but there's something more specific. That's not his primary idea. He's specifically referring to the rejection of his own nation. His rejection of the Jewish nation and the Jewish leaders of Christ. It encompasses all men, of course. He uses anthropos, just all men in general. But he specifically has in mind here the rejection that came at the hands of the Jewish nation, of the nation of Israel. This is made clear in what we'll look at in more detail next week, but in verses 6 through 8, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. But this stone, which the builders rejected, became the chief cornerstone. That's repeated several times throughout the gospel. We'll look at it later. But it was specifically the prophetic word of God that the Messiah would come to his own people, those who were to be the builders of the kingdom of God, and he will be rejected. He will be rejected. Essentially, when Christ came to the nation, they examined his claims. They had a very strong messianic kind of fervor and a, a messianic kind of hope that was very present in the first century and, and still is. And so when he came, there, there was an initial excitement to all that he was and to all that he did and to his teaching. There was an initial willingness to listen to the prophetic voice of John the Baptist to listen to and respond to Christ and his teaching and his healing and his miracle ministry. But ultimately, they rejected him. 
And ultimately, the rejection was not simply of him in terms of his messianic ministry in it's sort of a general or benign sense. It was a rejection that turned to hatred, especially by the leaders. And so when we read this term rejection, ultimately the response of rejection is this, is the desire to put God to death, to put God to death. Now, Jesus knew this. He said this repeatedly to his disciples. He was going to be rejected. He was going to be delivered over to the leaders. And he was going to be put to death. And that he would rise on the same day. I I know I repeat this often, but it's one of the most profound, pithy statements of John Owen to say this in relation to this topic. Sin always aims at the utmost. Sin always aims at the utmost. In other words, the end of sin is always its complete fulfillment, which has to be the destruction of God himself. That's the only way that sin can gain its freedom. Otherwise, it's under condemnation. And so when we see that when Christ comes and that he was the revelation of God in its most ultimate and unique sense, the eternal Son in flesh, the response of the world and the response of his own people was to kill him, was to put him to death, was to reject him and to reject everything about him. Now, this rejection, however, was not due to a lack of evidence. It wasn't due to a lack of clarity about his person. It wasn't due to a lack of credentials on Christ's part. But it was due to the wrong perception they had of the Messiah and even more specifically to their own darkened, hardened hearts and their own religious hypocrisy. Now this is the negative side, granted. But we understand the deep-seated nature of this kind of rejection of men and of the world. And Jesus told them, I won't read there, read it, but you can refer in Matthew 23, 31 through 38 as he's, as he's condemning and woe to the Pharisees, he's reminding them that on you lays the guilt of the blood of all of the prophets of God, beginning with Abel all the way to the last prophet. You're of the same ilk. He told them in Acts chapter 7, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. And what did they do after that? And they were cut to the quick, and then they take and they stone Stephen. That is the characteristic of unbelief. That's the characteristic of sin and of rejection. That's always going to be the nature of those who are in the line of Satan. What I want us just to mention on that point, though, is the rejection of Christ was not because of something lacking in Christ, but the rejection of Christ is the spiritual darkness and the hardness and the hypocrisy in the heart of men. Ultimately, the rejection of Christ, and again, we say this repeatedly, but has nothing to do with the intellect. God may use that in someone's life, the clear understanding and so forth. But ultimately, the rejection of Christ is not an intellectual rejection. It is a moral rejection. It is a moral hatred of who Christ is. Uh, This is the judgment, Jesus said, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's the the motive, the spiritual reality behind the rejection of men. And Romans 1, Paul puts it this way, men suppress 
the truth in unrighteousness. What is clear within them, what is evident, it is suppressed in unrighteousness. A love for unrighteousness, a love for sin that will be determined to have its way. So coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and is precious in the sight of God. And I just want to make a couple little notes here before we move on to the next point. First of all is this. Not every religion rejects the very name of Christ. I mean, you might say, well, I know a lot of people who name the name of Christ. They don't hate him. They actually say a lot of nice things about him. They say a lot of good things about him. They certainly wouldn't want to crucify him. I mean, even Islam considers him to be a great prophet. Many of the cults consider him to be the highest of God's creation. Not God, of course, but the highest of God's creation. We can think Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, and others. Many spiritually open people have a general attitude of kindness toward Christ. So what, what is, how does that fit into what I just said? And to what Jesus said? I mean, there's a lot of people who view Christ as merely a good man or a divine teacher that accepts everyone. He teaches a nice morality that helps people get along and will ultimately bring everyone to heaven. Now see, that kind of Christ, you can fill a lot of churches And that kind of Christ can find a wide acceptance among men. A non-judgmental, a non-condemning, a non-demanding kind of Christ, always ready to salve the conscience for the one in sin, who's a good moral example of love and kindness, but little more. Or in the Catholic sense, the one whose merit enables you to complete your own justification through works. There's all kinds of views of Christ that people don't reject, But Christ, as he's truly understood, is always rejected by the unregenerate heart. Christ understood as he truly is, as the eternal Son of God. Christ is the sole means of knowing God. Through him, he is the way and the truth and the life. Christ is the only acceptable sacrifice. Christ is the absolute, unchallenged Lord of heaven and earth. Christ as the one who will judge the living and the dead. Now that's a different story. That Christ is rejected. And so that's how he came to his people. It wasn't that there was some lack of credentials. There isn't now that there's some lack of credentials. It's overwhelming, but it is when he's rightly understood, the unregenerate heart will reject him. Now, I would just ask you, what version of Christ do you believe in? What version of Christ do you love? Let me just note the second part of that just briefly here. There is a second seed here, and this is the one who he is identifying primarily. And that is the seed of the righteous. These are the seed of the woman. These are the true people of God. Those who are marked by obedient faith and who believe in God's promises, who love him. At the birth of Seth, it said in Genesis that the righteous, or the righteous seed of the woman was established with Enosh, and men began to call on the name of the Lord. This righteous line went through Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Through him it went through Shem, and then through Abraham, to whom came a promise of a people and a blessing and a seed in Genesis 22. It then passed on through Isaac and to Jacob, and then another promise through David, for whom God said he would build an enduring house. An enduring house that would never end, which was ultimately looking forward to Christ. And Paul says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as to many, but to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So Christ then is the promise that God made 
to destroy the works of Satan. He is the ultimate in the line of the righteous. He is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. And it is why, in God's eyes, Paul could say, or Peter could say here, that he is choice or chosen and precious in the sight of God. He already established that it was in precious blood that he provided redemption in verse 19. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in the last times for the sake of you. From the world he is rejected. From God's view, he is the fulfillment of his promise. He is the demonstration of God's eternal purpose. And so what men reject as useless and undesirable and hated, God values as precious, as precious. Now Peter's emphasis here is on God's evaluation, God the Father's evaluation of Christ. And that's the only one that matters. Is God who affirmed at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Whatever else anyone says about Christ, the father says, he is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is my chosen one. He is the son of my love. He is the one in whom all of my purposes and my plans are established. Now the reason, however, I call this our privileged distinction is for this reason. There was emphasis on the Father. The reality is, is that as regenerate believers who have been given life, see God's glory in Christ and have the same evaluation of Christ. If you know Christ, you see him as choice and precious. If you know Christ, you see him as the fulfillment of all that your soul needs and desires. You see him as the one that you, as he says over in chapter 8, that you love that you love, that you believe in, that you hold on to. And if that is the case, it is because, as he already established in verse 3 of chapter 1, you have been born again according to the great mercy of God the Father to this living hope. To this living hope. And coming to him is coming to him in faith, to this living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in God's eyes and in our eyes. And we see him not as merely a good teacher, not merely as a moral example, not merely as some highly exalted creature of God, but as God himself, the eternal son. And actually, Peter makes that subtle point. Let me just note this to you. When he says, in coming to him, notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 4. The coming to him The him is picking up on the thing that he just said in verse 3, the Lord. When he says, who have tasted the kindness of the Lord, he's quoting from Psalm 34, 8. Which in Psalm 34, 8 is a clear reference to Yahweh, to God. Here, Peter is drawing a straight line from a reference to Yahweh to Christ. To Christ. He's not merely the Messiah, but he is that and more. He is that and more. And those who have eyes open to see it, hear that and see it and rejoice and love him and yield to him. Now, why is this important to note? Why is this important to note? Why spend so much time on that? Well, because it's, it's extremely foundational to our understanding of our relationship to the world. But there's a more practical reason as well. The recipients of Peter's letter are suffering. They're suffering and they will suffer more. And God's people have suffered throughout the ages and are suffering and will suffer in the future. And who knows what our future holds. 
So the encouragement that we need and that they need is to know that our trust in Christ, our worship in Christ, our inheritance in Christ, our being part of the kingdom of Christ is not some vain kind of hope. It's not some wishy-washy, vague kind of confidence that we have. It is a confidence in the one that God himself has affirmed as chosen and precious in his own sight. So Peter is reminding us that this, the world may mock Christ, the Philippine president may say it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Dawkins may intimidate many by the books and the lectures that he gives, and professors might try to destroy the faith of many, But Peter establishes here, though he may be unprecious to them, even hated in God's sight, in your sight, he is choice and he is precious. That's God's evaluation. And so the question really is then, which evaluation means the most? That of the world that rejects him or that of God himself who says, this is my beloved son. This is my chosen one. He is precious in my eyes. He may be hated by the world. We may be mocked by the world in our identification with Christ. We may be rejected ultimately at every possible level, socially, intellectually, within our jobs, within our families, and whatever may come. And yet, we stand on Him who is precious in God's sight. And we have to understand this. I'm not going to... I'm just going to mention this verse, Matthew 13, 21. Because if we don't get that, if we don't believe that evaluation of God and we're not confident in that, then ultimately we won't be able to stand when the persecution rises. He says in Matthew 13, 21, there is one who has no firm root in himself but is only temporary and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. He falls away. And so this is part of Peter's encouragement to say, don't fall away, but live confidently. Don't give in to the pressure of the world to hide the testimony of Christ. And stand firm knowing that this Christ whom you love is precious in the sight of God. And as a final note, and we'll move on to our second point, and I'm going to have to go quickly here. Though the world now may reject Christ and reject us as his people... The reality is there is a coming day when everybody will have the same opinion. Not the same emotional reaction, but the same opinion, the same acknowledgement of who Christ is. Listen to this. After mentioning that he was humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul tells us in Philippians, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the reality is, is whatever estimation men may have of Christ today, on that day, he is exalted and every knee will bow before him. And that is our, as Christians, our confidence. That's where we gain confidence. We know that whatever it may seem like today, that's not the end. That's not the end of the story. Well, let's move on to the second point. So the first privileged distinction that we have is that we are a part of the people of God who by grace have been opened to see God as He is and to see Christ as He is and to love Him 
and to participate in his salvation. The second is this. And um, we're going to pick up on this next week, but I want to get through this uh, as far as we can. Look what he says next. He says, in coming to him as a living stone. Here's the second privileged distinction. The spiritual reality and experience of God's people is unique, is unique. We have a relationship with God that's not even close to being mirrored by any other religion because it's reality. And theirs is not built on reality. He says, coming to him as the living stone, we also as living stones. This is amazing. The idea here is that we come to him for life and in his life, we have life. And in his life, we are growing in the fullness of his image as the people of God in Christ where God uniquely displays his glory. Now, that's kind of a mouthful. Let me, let me say a little bit more about it. And coming to him, coming to him as to a living stone. The first thing I'd note here is that we have fellowship in his resurrection life. We have fellowship in his resurrection life. Coming to him as to a living stone. A living stone. This idea of living is a favorite of Peter. He talked about our living hope in verse 3 of chapter 1. He talked about the living word in verse 23 of chapter 1. It marks the spiritual nature and reality of Christ's work here. His unique possession of divine life. And the one out of which every other stone in this building of God, which I'll mention in a minute, minute, derives its life. In his life, we have life. And what is he communicating by this metaphor here? Well, a stone, a stone in this context is, is connecting to the idea of the temple building. And where do we get that? Look at what he says again in verse 6, chapter 6, or verse 6 of chapter 2. I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone. The imagery that he's building on here is that of a building. He'll mention in just a few verses, or just a few uh, phrases, the next verse, a spiritual house that's being built up. A spiritual house that is being built up. And here then, Christ as the living stone is the foundation of God's saving work. It is... The stone out of which he is building a new house, no longer is there the worship of the temple, but there is the reality of God's presence among his people who are united to Christ. The living stone, actually even more specifically, picks up on the idea of his resurrection. Of his resurrection. He was the stone rejected. Again, the stone rejected, as he mentions again in verse 7, the stone rejected was the stone crucified, was the stone killed, but yet he is the living stone. He's not a dead stone. He's not a stone still in the grave. He's not a stone without life. He's not a stone that underwent decay, but he is that stone. He is that one on whom God is establishing his work of redemption, whom God would raise to life and in whom we would have life. Again, he says that at the beginning of in verse 3, he says he's caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. From the dead. He's not a dead stone. We do not come to one as a past memory, but one who lives, one who is, one who is at the right hand of the Father. One noted, as the risen Lord, the stone possesses and imparts life to those who united to him by faith. By faith. So we come to a living stone. 
We come to one who is alive, who is alive not only for us, but who is alive in us, who know him, who share in his life. And it's not limited here to the initial coming to Christ, but it is the life that we share with him and that in which we have the most intense and wonderful and full fellowship with God. We have the fellowship with God. It means we who have come to Christ and share in his life have in him access to God. That is, that is something that, that is unmimicked in anywhere else. Anywhere else. This reality and spiritual experience is unique and it's another distinction among Christians is we don't simply claim to hold on to a doctrine as in something past But we claim to serve the living one who is currently and presently the Lord of heaven and earth. As a matter of fact, one said this. I think it captures this well. No other faith can claim a living founder who has passed through death and has risen to a triumphant station at God's right hand, there to be continually available to the immediate fellowship of each one who trusts in him. You could have an Eastern religion in which you have you know, the great hope of being nothing, of being, lacking all personality, all personal experience into the great mmm of the universe, right? That's why they sit there and meditate. There's that kind of view of God. There's that kind of religion which encompasses the view of God and a kind of relationship with God that, that, that answers for millions there's other, there's other kinds of relationship with God where they, they know that God is sovereign. You could think of Islam and that he's there. He doesn't dwell in his people. He's not risen for their life. They don't have intimate fellowship with him. And they could not for they reject this work of Christ as the mediator. But look at what he says to us. What makes us distinct is that we come to God and we say we have currently, presently, in spiritual reality, a relation that is unknown to anybody. Even by concept is not even repeated in any religion of the world, but is true of those who are God's people. It's true of those who belong to Christ. Think of, think of this. Think of the great glory of Christianity. Let me just give you a couple of couple of passages here. He says in John 14, now, now think about it in this way. We're, we're used to this as we understand Scripture and we understand our own commitments to Christ and are well familiar with this. A picture of any other religion among men that could even come close to the concepts of the reality that are expressed to us who know Christ. Jesus says, I'll ask of the Father, he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, it does not know him. But he abides with you and will be in you. In that day, he says in verse 20 of John 14, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, but I in you. And he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Listen to verse 23. And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode in him. We will dwell in him in a way that is intimate. And it will be the spiritual reality that defines all the people of God. 
said it in this way in 1 John. He says, what we have seen, we proclaim to you also that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Who else can claim that? Who else can claim that? The distinct privilege that we have as Christians, we're not simply a part of a group. We're not simply a part of an organization. But to be a Christian and to be identified with God's people and to truly have faith in Christ is to say that I have a real and abiding and a sharing in the life of God and a fellowship with Him that is initiated at the point of salvation that will only increase throughout this life as I pursue sanctification and will ultimately be realized when I'm in His presence forever in a resurrected body. It's a glorious, glorious fellowship, a glorious and glorious distinction. He describes it this way next, as you as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Being built up as a spiritual house. And again, this term house by some is explained as being as a part of God's family, a house in which there are children and so on and so forth. But the idea of house here is best understood and most commonly as, again, in a reference and an allusion to the temple. That's, that's sort of the background uh, metaphor that's being built upon here. Pardon my pun. The temple is often referred to as a house. When God promised to David, he promised he, this promise of an eternal kingdom that he would build him an enduring house. It's repeatedly Jesus referred to it as destroy this house, referring at times to the temple. So the temple here is what is in view. But he, now he says it's not merely, you're not coming to being built up as a temple, but you're being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house. What's the distinction? Let me just explain it to you this way. In the Old Testament, God's presence uniquely dwelled in connection with the physical structure of the tabernacle and of the temple. Right? You remember that? Again, we're not going to trace that all the way through. But when, when the tabernacle was established... As the place, as he promised in Exodus 29, that I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. Tremendous, tremendous statement. That was what marked them off among the nations of the earth. God dwelled among them. He dwelled among them by his establishment of the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the altar, the bread of show, uh, the bread of the table, the bread of presence, the, the candles that were there the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and all that was in it. God was among His people. His presence was there. It was uniquely manifest by the Spirit. So, for example, in Exodus 40, Moses, it says, Then the cloud, when the tabernacle was established, while the Jews were wandering in the wilderness, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Later, when the priesthood worship it was established and enacted, we read that in Leviticus 10, Aaron and his sons, after being cleansed, came. And remember, God struck his sons dead because they came in an unworthy manner. But yet that was to emphasize that you're coming into the presence of God. This is the place where God's presence uniquely dwells. The same thing in 1 Kings 8 after Solomon's temple. The temple was there. It was the centerpiece. It was the place where God were to worship, where God's people were to worship. He established a particular geographic location in Jerusalem, a particular structure, the temple, and a specific method, namely the priesthood and the sacrifices by which God was to be honored among his people and among the world. But here he says we come to a spiritual house, a spiritual house. This is of a different nature. 
Jesus promised the leaders, if you'll remember, that there's going to be a day where not one stone is left upon another. Right? They're going to reject him, and God's going to reject that house. God's going to reject their false hope in the physical temple. He's instead, he says, I'm going to establish something else, something in its place. And here, referred to by Peter as a spiritual house, a spiritual house. As the writer of Hebrews would say, the old things would become obsolete. Their symbolic and prophetic, prophetic nature fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ. And Jesus himself would refer to his body as a temple in John 2.20. And now, coming to Christ, we no longer come to a physical location, a geographic location... We don't come with prescribed worship as they did in the Old Testament. We don't go to a specific land. We don't make uh, travels to Mecca or to Jerusalem. These journeys once in our life, we come to Christ who is risen. He's at the right hand of God. And we come to a spiritual house, a spiritual house that is built and constructed and made a reality through the Holy Spirit who unites us to the resurrected Christ. It's a spiritual house because it's a house where the Spirit now uniquely dwells in His people through the risen Christ. So it's no longer associated with a specific place, specific ethnic people, prescribed worship, a building, but it's completely centered on and find its reality in Christ. And this is what John told the woman at the well, or Jesus told the woman at the well. Time is going to come when neither in this mountain nor Jerusalem are people going to worship me. The Father seeks those who will worship Him in what? Spirit and truth, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That is the reality of those who are the true worshipers of God. A spirit made alive by the Holy Spirit. A spirit that worships God in sincerity, as he's already established in Peter. A spirit that worships God in the power of the Holy Spirit who enables this worship. And the people of God become then the dwelling place of God. Now let me just read this to you. We'll maybe expand on this a little bit down the road, but just let me read these words. And there's so much more to be said here, but listen to Paul's word in Ephesians 2. And, and I want to make some application then to this, uh, as we'll have to wrap up this morning. I want to make some application for this to us as the church. But listen to what he says. Now he's saying that, that peace has been made in Christ, Jew and Gentile together in the one body of Christ. And he says, for through him, speaking of Christ, this is Ephesians 2.18, through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Can you even fathom that? The profundity of that? I can't. I want to. You as the people of God... Those who are here present, those who are part of this church and every church of regenerate believers are the dwelling place of God. No longer in a temple, now God dwells uniquely among his people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The people of God. 
the new temple of God, everything that was represented and foreshadowed and prophetic about the Old Testament temple is now the reality for those who are a part of the church. And as a matter of fact, since we're there, he says a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 3 that God's glory in doing this, he says in verse 10, is so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. You sitting here who know God and who know Christ are his own design to display his wisdom and his glory to all of the angelic realm. You who are sitting here today and every believer gathered together with the people of God are, at this moment, God's picture and of his wisdom through all of the heavenlies. Where God says, look, Look at what I did in my son. Look at my wisdom in establishing this people. Look at my wisdom in being God, creating a people in my son, in Christ, in whom my presence will uniquely dwell, who are my spiritual house. And he says for a holy priesthood, holy priesthood. Tremendous, tremendous statement. Let me, let me note on this spiritual house here. Just as the Old Testament temple was constructed according to the very specific design of God, so this spiritual house, we shouldn't think of a heap of stones or randomly collected stones or just Christians who are sort of scattered abroad who together, if you heaped them all together, would be this house. This house is orderly. It is organized it is arranged according to the sovereign plan of God. And each stone, each Christian is placed within it as among the people of God, uniquely equipped by that spirit to function according to God's purpose. And this is what I want to bring out on this, and we'll have to pick it up, and we'll try to finish the, through verse 10 tomorrow, uh, next week. We as westernized Protestants tend to read everything about the gospel in individualized terms. We tend to think of salvation almost about me getting saved and that being the sum total of salvation. That is an essential aspect. That is the initial aspect of being saved. It is not the sum total of our salvation. I know I've said this many times, but we have to hold on to it. It is this, that we are saved into a body, a community of believers here described by Peter as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. There is no such thing as an isolated Christian, a Christian who can live unto themselves or is saved or exist primarily for themselves. Your salvation is not in its ultimate end for you to go live in some spiritual, ethereal state by yourself somewhere, kind of connecting with God's people as you choose and desire. That's not how it works. You were saved as a body. You were saved as a temple. You were saved into a building that God has established His presence and in which He is working. So each Christian is saved into a community of believers united to Christ by the Spirit to serve, to be served within that community and within, ultimately, a local church constituting, together, constituting the whole of the body. He's done that. He's done that. So you're not here merely for 
your own interest, although it's not less than that, but it's more. He says, we by all one spirit were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink by one, to by one spirit. And God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. God did that. God did that. He composed the body. He says in Romans 12, we are members of one another. And that's part of the imagery here that Peter is picking up on. When salvation, we're saved into a church. So you, as a Christian, are not only a recipient of God's salvation, but in that salvation, you are made a part of God's spiritual house that he is building. And you have been placed in that house for his glory, not only to receive from this community of believers indwelled by the Spirit of God the benefits of that salvation, but also to give yourself to that body to serve, to exercise your spiritual gift to the building up of the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, he says that in verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength with God's supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So, So we have this unique privilege. So when we think of this, as you come to church on Sunday morning, while you certainly, we all come with our needs, we all come with our own desires, we all come with our own wants and needs for encouragement and comfort and all of those things. And that's totally right. I'm totally right to come that way, of course. But not if that's the end of it all. We also come knowing that we are coming together with the people of whom we are a part who constitute the spiritual house of God that he is building, in which he is working, in which he is displaying his wisdom, in which he has made you, whether large or small, whether a foot or a toenail or an eye or a blade of hair, has designed you to complete your work for the betterment of the body and for the building up of itself in love, that which every joint supplies. And so capture the wonder here of what it means to be a part of the church, to be a part of the people of God. Well, I'll wrap this section up next week and then hopefully finish all the way down to verse 10. We'll have to end there this morning. My point this morning would be to leave understanding the distinction that you have in the world. You are a, the fruit of the promise of God to build for himself a people and an enduring house in his son by which he would display his glory. You are a part of the people of God and the body and the house in which God is working and dwelled by His Spirit, building up in the most intimate fellowship to know His grace, to know His glory, and to live with Him in that fellowship now and forever. Let me pray and then... Uh, do we have a closing hymn? Where's Marco? Do you? Okay, then we'll sing maybe one verse of a closing hymn. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these... Tremendous truths. Help us to lay hold of them. We, we cannot with natural eyes behold and feel and understand and grasp these things. We need your spirit to do that. And so we ask that by faith you would give us understanding and help us to delight in and know these glories of Christ and, and to live it out in our lives in the way that we walk with you in this world and serve one another and are faithful witnesses to proclaim the glories of you who have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And these things we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.